I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. Welcome to the broadcast. This is Theology Unplugged. Hey guys, how you doing? Doing great. Good. We got everybody here today at the Credo House, uh, ready to talk some theology. Tim, how you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to discuss theology. I'm excited to be with my buddies and talk about this important topic. All right. Well, we're going to get unplugged today, continuing to talk about the uh, issue of the mass. Sam, you had something to say? No. I you was took just, a deep breath. I was like just you. saying good morning. And- it's yeah. good to be here. All right. Well, you want to say that too? Surrounded by friends and coffee. <laughs> I haven't decided if it's good to be here. <laughs> no. All right. Well, we are continuing our discussion on the mass here today, Tim. What do you think of that? You know what? I think it's a, a, it's a central thing to talk about. And uh, as people are hearing this broadcast too, you know, I mean, Roman Catholicism is going to be big time in the news the next couple months. You know, we, we have that the Pope, for the first time in 600 years, resigned. And then uh, we also had the the head of uh, England, the head of the Roman Catholic Church in England, has stepped down as well. And so uh, there's just a lot of Roman Catholicism in the news. And so uh, all Christians and, and evangelicals and Protestants will be thinking about and interacting with Roman Catholicism, at least having it on the news in the background. And so I think uh, our discussion on the Mass uh, being such a central part of Roman Catholicism is a very timely thing uh, for us to talk about. It's like we knew this was going to happen when we started talking about this stuff. JJ, I've heard rumors that um, your your talk last week was, or a couple of weeks ago, was part of the reason why the Pope resigned. Yeah. He changed his view on the Mass. Is that right? I just, I changed his life. Yeah. I mean, we shamed him into retirement. <laughs> That's got to be a really hard job. I'm sure oh, he's man. ready for a break. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and he took, how old was he when he took the position? He was in his 70s when he took the position. I mean, he's like Moses, you know, at 80 years old, starting a career, yeah. you know. I think he was 78. Yeah. A, wow. credit, a credit to the man. It's, it's a humble thing to do, to, yeah. to step down. Very few people, when they're given great power, are able to give it back up again yeah. yeah and to do it in such a uh, you know such a uh, in a humble way really you know he didn't do it because of embroiled in scandal or anything like that so yeah I mean there's definitely that's the thing I mean in life you might disagree with some people but there's a lot that we can learn from every person and we can definitely learn some things from him in that area you're so conciliatory today aren't you I am I'm just feeling a lot of love right now <laughs> so uh yeah and it's, I think partly it's because of the latte that I'm drinking has a heart on the top. And I think it's uh, just leading me to be a little bit more loving. It's a continual reminder. I was just thinking maybe in a future broadcast we can talk about what would happen if Benedict decides, if he gets his second wind and decides to come back uh, to the Vatican. And then we'd have two popes like we did hey, back in the that be 14th something? century. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've been there. We've been there in we the could, history of the church. We could just live, uh, live blog or live, uh, what are we doing right now? Live cast. Broadcast. Live broadcast that. Yeah. Um, okay. Actually, there was a time when there were three popes at the same time. Uh-huh. That was the amazing thing about it. Yeah. yeah. The uh, Babylonian captivity of the Pope. The and, great, uh, great Avignon. Yeah. And, uh, it was crazy. Good stuff. Well, let's talk about the Mass. I, uh, we, we talked about it last time, guys. And um, good stuff we talked about. I think most of what we dealt with had to do with the history of the Mass and kind of just figuring out what happened in history, 
why is it that uh, this arose in history? And so a lot of historical stuff, some biblical stuff, but I do want to, during this broadcast, attempt to at least bring up the arguments that a Roman Catholic might give with regard to the Mass, because this is going to be different than, say, when we talked about purgatory. When we talked about purgatory, we said there's uh, they don't really bring up too much biblical justification, and it's not as if they that's a, a, a slight to them. They would admit that because it's mostly historical development. But with the Mass, it's a little bit different because they have a few key scriptures that they will bring up, and this is really an apologetic these days for the Roman Catholic Church whenever they're trying to convert somebody from Protestantism to Roman Catholicism, they will use these verses. Um, I guess the phrase that I would use this, and I'll ask you guys this and see if you know what I'm talking about, but this is, this is what a Roman Catholic might say to you if they're trying to convince you of the doctrine of transubstantiation and the doctrine that this is two things. Number one, transubstantiation, told this last time, the body and the blood were bread and wine. Bread and wine change in substance to the, to the body and blood, actual body and blood of Christ. That's number one. And number two, this is necessary for salvation because at least historically, this has been a argument of the Roman Catholic Church that you have to have this in order to be saved. Now, yeah, and l- let me just bring that up in the uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1995, section 1129 says, the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Hmm. Okay, so here's here's my question to you guys. If, it, if that is not true, if it is not actually transubstantiated and necessary for salvation, why in John chapter 6 did Jesus let them walk away. You know what I'm talking about? Why did he let them walk away? That's the question. The guys are, are around. Jesus is giving a weird speech. He gives lots of weird speeches, but he gives this weird speech about, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will have no part of me. And these guys that are following him, you know how John does in, in his uh, gospel. He's always got all these disciples that he calls disciples. You never know whether they're really disciples or not until later on, whether they stick with him or, or run away. But he's got a bunch of disciples that are following him. And he says this. He says, unless you eat of my blood and drink, uh, or eat, drink of my blood and eat of my flesh, you will have no part of me. And they found this to be a hard saying. And they left him. And very few were following him. This is where Jesus turns to Peter and says, you can leave me too. But they left him because he said this. He left him because he said, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And so he, here's the deal, guys. Look at me. Look at me. Everybody look at me. I'm here's the deal. Tractor beam, okay. brother. You got right to get this. If he was not being literal, why didn't he just say, hey, wait a minute, guys. You guys are taking me too literally. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not being serious about eating my blood. I'm not. I'm not being serious about this being necessary for salvation. Why did he let him walk away? So what you're doing is you're saying uh, this is a really good point that Roman Catholics have is that because Jesus very clearly says this is my body, this is my blood, and they 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 hear that. It seems like they hear that. They in their minds are thinking I'm about ready to eat the body of Jesus. And because that's such a hard thing for them to comprehend, they walk away. Yeah. 
and Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't well, correct them. Anybody thoughts. have the verse open, that, that passage yeah, open? I do. Read it. Well, which one? Which part well, there's, there's a few parts where he talks about it. I think uh, we're talking about John 6, 48, starting there. I mean, it goes, it goes all the way down um, through uh, 61. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Uh, Jesus says, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then, of course, the Jews dispute. How can he say that he's given us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, so I think I understand why he let him go away. Because yeah. he, something else he said in John 6, namely that no one can come to the Son except those whom the Father draws, and that he came to give life to those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. So Jesus didn't feel any urgency to try to manipulate or coerce people into staying with him because he was there to make known the truth and he knew that the spirit would draw those whom the father had given him from eternity past. But one thing that's important, when you read John 6, you have to remember that um, there are parallel passages and the passage that is parallel to the one I just read, verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. Its parallel is found earlier in verse 40, where Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we see the same terminology. Mm. He'll have eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. What he says down in verse 54 is feeding on my flesh and drinking my blood. In verse 40, he describes as looking on the Son and believing in him. So I think a case can be made in John 6 that the eating of the flesh and the drinking of the blood it's a very graphic, metaphorical description for believing in Jesus and coming to Jesus and trusting in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Tim, you buy that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, <clears throat> there are many reasons why or how you process what you think is happening in the Mass. And, <clears throat> and the reason that for, a, for an evangelical Protestant to be listening to this right now and maybe be like, why are you making such a big deal out of this? is because it is a big, big deal in the Mass. I mean, that is the purpose in the Mass, really. And you see everything about what the person who, the ordained person who is carrying out the Mass, they are kneeling, they are doing many things many different times because they are believing that that this bread in a, and they wouldn't even be afraid to use the term magical. In a magical way, it becomes the body of Jesus. In a mysterious way, they might prefer to use. In a mysterious way, it becomes the body, and in a mysterious way, it becomes the blood. And uh, and this is this is a center point: is that the body and the blood of Jesus are again washing you. And uh, and I think that uh, um, I see what Sam's saying. For me, I think the bigger reason why I reject. Uh, this happening is more Christological, I think more Trinitarian is this idea, and the Protestants have brought it up many times to Roman Catholics, is this idea that Jesus has a human body, and a human body cannot be in New York, Los Angeles, London, Nairobi, 
uh, Cape Town and and well, Shanghai. Tim, hold off on time. that because you're getting okay. into a very complex subject, and I yeah. do want to stick with this verse just okay. for a little bit. Okay, I'm yeah, take I'm, it one at a time. I, I withdraw my comment until a later time. No, no, it's good stuff. JJ, but, how about you? Any comments? No, I mean we're seeing uh, something that happens all throughout the Gospels. You know, when he talked about his body being like the temple, you tear it down or rebuild it, and then they all start freaking out. How's he going to tear down or rebuild Herod's temple? Yeah. So that issue of misunderstanding. Jesus is not confined to this passage. It happens all throughout the Gospels, and it's the difference of hearing with faith and hearing without faith. Well, and primarily with John. It's not just throughout the Gospels. John seems to have this theme of people misunderstanding Jesus, but Jesus not correcting him. The temple being one. I mean, that's a big one. Hey, he says, I mean, he even got killed for this. I mean, that was on his trial, and he still doesn't correct them. You know, he does still doesn't say, hey, guys, wait a minute, you're misunderstanding me. I didn't mean the literal temple. I meant, uh, you know, it, it's something different. See, I don't think I don't think that this passage even is in reference to the uh, Eucharist at all. I don't either. Yeah. And, and what we have to realize as an overarching theme is that Jesus is offensive, <laughs> offensive to the point that they murder him. Uh, he is offensive to those who do not believe him to be the savior of the world. And and so just because people are offended by him does not mean that, therefore, he's making a theological point. Let me say one other thing in response to your question, Michael, so we don't want to leave this open-ended. You said, why did he let them go? Um, it's interesting that after Jesus has made this incredible uh, portrayal of drinking his blood and eating his flesh, which I think is parallel to believing in him, it's very clear from the two passages that, we, that I just mentioned, uh, Jesus then says down in verse um, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Well, what words? Well, the words, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then there's a parenthetical statement. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So that's the reason why Jesus let them go because he knew which ones did not and would not believe. And he also knew that the only ones who would believe are those whom the Father had given him and who were about to be drawn to him. Mm. And it's easy for us to forget that Jesus is often divining people's motives in ways that they're not always aware of. In verses 25 and 26, he said, look, I know why you're seeking me. It's because you ate the fill of the loaves. So I'm going to now take opportunity for your wrong motives in following me to teach you a spiritual lesson about what you really need that mm. you're not even aware that you need. In John chapter 4, Jesus got to the disciples and he says, that they tell him, hey, Rabbi, it's time to eat. He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And so they start going, what? what? Who gave him food? <laughs> Somebody slipped him a, a Big Mac, you know, on the side when we yeah, were watching. Right. And so he doesn't answer them then. Uh, another time he says, unless you are born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus gets all confused. He does explain at that time, but it still shows how he speaks kind of in these riddles. And so it's very characteristic. But let me, let me tell you this, and here's, here's my basic argument and one of the reasons why I don't believe that this passage is speaking about the Eucharist here in John chapter 6 is I don't think John brings up the Eucharist at all. I mean, then that's significant to me because John at least is the one book or gospel that explicitly says that it's written that you might have eternal life. I mean, that's the goal of it. 
But it's the only one of the Gospels that does not give the Lord's Supper, the, the instance of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't tell, you know, about how he passed the bread around and said, eat of this and, and uh, drink of this. Uh, it, and it's the one that had more opportunity than any of the others because one-third of the book of John is in the upper room from chapters 13 all the way to chapter 17. And so it has the longest instance of the upper room, but yet doesn't cover any of the Eucharist. And at the same time is the book that is for eternal life. So you say, well, that doesn't prove John chapter six is not talking about the Eucharist. But here's what I would say. Would you think that John would be so incredibly obscure about something that is so incredibly essential and leave out the very instance that Christ instituted that which is necessary for eternal life, but oops, I forgot to tell the story. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. One more passage that I wanna talk about, which is very important, uh, Paul brings it up in, uh, to the Corinthians, but it is the actual giving of the, um, the Eucharist. It's actually whenever Christ uh, in the upper room, in the gospels, not John, but in the gospels says, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, most would say that's what he said, so that's what we believe. And it does seem that the early church took it such a way, mm-hmm. that this is my body means this is my body. How, how do we respond to passages just as basic as that? With why, is, why is there so much silence here? Everybody's deferring to one another. Well, I would once again go into the Trinitarian aspect, but I'm holding that off until I get the green light. Yeah, we've got to give you the green light soon. Well, I, the, uh, that kind of language, these, uh, these assertions are common in the Gospels. Um, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Um, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, there's all, many statements such as this that we understand obviously are metaphorical. Because they're metaphorical doesn't mean they're not true. People think you say something like metaphor or figurative or symbolic, and they think that you're denying the reality. And we're not denying the reality. We're just saying the reality is expressed in figurative language. And the reality is that Jesus is saying um, this bread represents, it symbolizes my body, this cup, this blood, this wine represents or symbolizes uh, my blood. So that's just, that's very common language. In fact, um, I think we could probably come up with several dozen instances in which this kind of language is used. From Jesus. From Jesus and in the rest of the New Testament. Hmm. And can I jump in with the Christological stuff real not quick? Yet. Not yet, we gotta finish this one. In the okay. very same, the way, in let, the let, very let, same <laughs> conversation, he tells them, I am, I am the vine, and they don't then think they should go plant him in the ground and, and produce wine from him. Yeah, from John. Yeah, we'll jump over to John, and he does say that I am the vine. Let yeah. me mm-hmm. give you another example. Uh, in Luke's version of this, in chapter uh, 22, uh, verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, if, if, if we're insisting that we take that in a strictly literal way, that there's a physical equivalence between this bread and my body, then what do we do with verse 20? When he says, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, is somebody going to say that the literal cup mm. is the new covenant? That's a good point. I've no, never heard that. It's not. It, obviously, it's, it's what is contained in the cup is represents what actually inaugurates the new covenant. Very good point, because that is the exact same language. Sure. But but one more thing, and then Tim. 
what about this? Okay, I'm, I'm throwing out my, you know, my, yeah. my silver bullet here. Bring it, brother. But if, if he's being very literal and saying, this is my body, then you'd have to say, at that moment, it was his body. You know, it's not, we're not waiting until tomorrow after the sacrifice. But right now, as I'm handing this to you, before sacrifice, before, you know, the blood or anything, this is my body. And nobody would say a pre-resurrected Christ, at least according to the rules of Chalcedon, which we, mm-hmm. you know, get to with you. But at least according to the rules of the incarnation. the rules of Chalcedon. It, can he be, you know, all of a sudden right then at multiple places and pre pre-sacrifice, uh, offering the sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, why climb, yeah, why climb up on the cross at all if all you have to do is break a loaf and be done with it? Yeah. Or So we're if we press it literally, Jesus is saying, I'm holding in my hand my hand. Yeah. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. hold here in my hand is me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the body that you see in your presence is actually now in my hand being given to you. And yeah. I, I, I think that's ridiculous. By the way, just to, to bring this point, the, the, the passage that Jesus quotes uh, that we just quoted in Luke, Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 11, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say this wine is my blood. He said this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is clearly using language figuratively here to, tr- to make the point that the bread and the wine represent or symbolize what his body and blood accomplished on the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I would say really quickly with uh, Chalcedon is just... The, the hypostatic union. Chalcedon, what the heck's that? That's the Council of Chalcedon that met to basically say, who is Jesus, what is Jesus, what is his, his substance, his stuff, who is he? And, uh, and the, the church, including Roman Catholics, have agreed that the Bible teaches that uh, the most mysterious, amazing thing that's ever happened in history is that God became a man. And in the person of Jesus, we have one conscious being of thought that has two different uh, substances, two different natures in a way. And, um, and that in that, he has a body like we have a body. So instead of, a, instead of me saying Jesus has a GPS coordinates at all time, let's say transcendent positioning system. So TPS coordinates. Jesus has a TPS coordinate right now. He exists right now in a certain place at a certain time. And he, that is why he's coming back for us, because he is a savior in a body, a resurrected body, but a savior in a body. And so for him to be able to be eaten all across the world at the same time on Sunday mornings violates him being in a body, uh, because he can't have, people cannot be consuming his actual body all across the world. So Rome responds to this thing saying that what happens is that the, the omnipresence power from his divinity is lent to his human body. And, uh, but what Chalcedon and all Christians have said for 1,700 years is that those two natures never, can, they never share powers between each other. So, uh, so just in an, in an essence of Christology, I think it's impossible for, for that bread to be the actual body of Jesus. Called the communicatio idiomatum. Mm-hmm. I stole that from you. I knew you were getting ready to say something like I that. I was. I knew you stole it. The community, <laughs> yeah, the communication of attributes, the idea that the, that the characteristics and qualities and attributes of the divine nature are predicated of or attributed to the human nature of Jesus. And thus, as you said, Tim, the power or the, or the attribute of omnipresence is predicated of or communicated to the, div- the human nature such that Jesus' body could be everywhere present every time mm-hmm. the Mass is celebrated. 
then that's, we would say we don't have a high priest in heaven because now we have this kind of human and divine mixture, yeah. and he's no longer human or divine. He's humane, and, and you and I aren't humane, so we have no high priest. We have no pioneer for our faith. We have nothing. He must. What you're saying, Tim, is he must remain according to the rules of humanity even today in this dual nature. Which is why we fall on our face and worship him because that's what he did for us is he said, I will forever be a human man. Oh, uh, guys, uh, we, we certainly are not in this broadcast undermining the importance. We talked about that last time. Sam talked about his, he believes in the spiritual presence and so that there is a real presence of some sort. So please understand, folks, that while we look at this and, and we do not believe in the physical real presence, we do not in any way undermine the importance of the Lord's Supper. So, guys, next week we're going to pick this back up talking about the Apocrypha, I think. So, uh, hopefully, uh, everybody will be able to join us. And thank you for joining us here on Theology Unplugged.